We invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to children's church. If they'd like to go to children's church, the door over here by the piano, on the, uh, sorry, on the right side of the sanctuary. With the rest, we open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. As we near the conclusion of our sermon series through Revelation. Revelation 20, last book of the Bible. Verses 11 to 15 is our text this morning. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Let me read the text. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from His presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. From the very beginning, humanity has been trying to hide from God. From the very first day when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and rebelled against God and rebelled against their Creator uh, and dove into the bushes when God came into the garden to hide themselves, so people have been hiding from God. That's part of our sinful nature. Uh, we try to get the thin fig leaves you know, and foliage to cover our shamefulness. We, we, we take our own self-righteousness and our own deeds and make sort of a fig leaf camouflage suit and hope that that will sort of help us blend in and not be singled out by God or not be held to account before Him. But what we see here in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 is that there is a final judgment day coming. And on that day, there will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to hide. There will be no foliage, no bushes, nothing where we can conceal ourselves and and hide ourselves, but we will instead be face to face with our Maker, with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Again, look at verses 11 to 15. What we see here is a vision of the final judgment day, the last ultimate judgment where the world will be brought to account before God. This is after human history has come to an end. This is after the world has come to an end. Christ has returned. The millennium, however you understand it, is over. Uh, The dead are raised. And now people are standing before God uh, and they must give an account to Him. And and it's really a, a, a frightening, sort of stark, sobering picture we have here. And if you look at this uh, narrative in verse 11 to 15, there are three, I guess you'd call them objects in this story. Three items. Three pieces of scenery that, that sort of make, make the, the flow of the story happen. We move sort of from one piece of scenery to the next. And I just kind of highlight that because I think it's a good way of remembering this passage. So later on this week when you're trying to remember what it was you heard on Sunday, 
You know, what, what do they talk about? Something? Oh, I can't remember. Think about these three pieces of scenery in the story, each of which uh, sort of encapsulates the, the core messages of this text. And the first piece of scenery, the first item, the first object that comes into view is the throne. The great white throne dominates the first vision, first part of the vision. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So there's the throne of God. And just stop and think about that. I, I was, you know, while I was writing the sermon, I was just trying to ponder a throne. You know, what does it mean that God is seated on a throne? That the first thing we're hit with is God's throne before us. What does that mean? You know? And as I thought about the concept of a throne, I was like, you know, that word, throne, overturns the entirety of our culture's conventional wisdom about God and spirituality. Almost all of it is built upon ideas that are antithetical to God being on a throne. You know, people view God as, uh, you know, the life force that's out there. You know, so sometimes people see it that way. Like if you've seen the movie Avatar, you know, great ride that movie is, but terrible worldview. <laughs> you know, don't adopt the worldview, just enjoy the graphics, is what I'd say about that movie. But it's all about, you know, the, the world is a big life force. It's one connected entity kind of thing. Um, some people see God as, you know, he's the, the quiet voice inside of me, my intuition. And when I just listen to my heart, that's where I find God. Uh, God is viewed as, as a buddy, as a therapist, as anything but a king. And so suddenly we have God coming and he's on a throne. And, you know, what does that mean? It means he's in charge. He's a king. Kings have rights. Subjects don't. Kings make the rules. The subjects don't make the rules. The kings are owed a great obligation of honor from the subjects. And, and if the subjects don't owe that, it's treasonous. It's, it's a very different setup. It's a great white throne. It's not a great white voting booth where we can go in and all, you know, put our thoughts together on what we think God should be like. It's not a great white lump of clay where we all go sort of take a hunk off and then we, you know, fashion God the way we want Him to, then have sort of a big art show where we go around and show each other what we each think God is like or what spirituality is like. It is not a great white uh, microphone at a town meeting where everyone gets a chance to go up and sound off about what they think about God. It's His throne. And He's sovereign and He rules and when God comes in His throne, every mouth is shut before Him. Notice something else about this throne. It's a great white throne. It's great. It's not the uh, you know, chair of a petty dictator or some little country somewhere. I mean, this is the king of the universe. And it's white. You know, what, what does white, for those of you who have been studying Revelation with us the past, whatever, seven, eight months, what does white fairly consistently symbolize in the book of Revelation? Purity, holiness, righteousness. It's God's uh, holy glory. And so God is a holy king. He's not like any other person in authority that you've ever met. Because every other person in authority that you and I have dealt with has always been flawed. 
There's always been some failing. They've always let us down in some way. Whether it's our, you know, kindergarten teachers and parents and grandparents all the way up to presidents and coaches and pastors. I mean, everybody has failed us in some way or another and has fallen short of that. But God is holy and He sits upon a throne that's founded of righteousness and justice. And what He does is right. And at the end of the day, there's nothing we'll be able to say to Him to contradict what He's said or done because He's always holy and right. He is the holy God upon His throne. And notice with His holiness, look how the universe reacts to Him. I just am fascinated by this sentence in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from His presence and there was no place for them. Such a vivid image of God entering in His regal attire in His majesty and glory and and the universe just scrambling to get away from Him because He's so awesome and so holy and so overwhelming in His majesty. I like how uh, Caird says, and Caird wrote a commentary on Revelation. This is what he says about this verse. I, I like this sentence. He said, Earth and heaven did not merely vanish like a puff of smoke. They fled. They fled in dismay before the moral grandeur of God because they were unfit for His continued presence. Don't you love that? They fled in dismay before the moral grandeur of God. That God is so holy and so majestic and so awesome and He's the King and He comes in His glory and, and the universe runs. I mean, everyone's just, run! We can't be in His presence. The only people that don't run who can't run are us. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So at the very end, there will be a final resurrection where all the dead, great and small, and will be sort of brought before God's throne. And there will be a great day of reckoning. Um, there will be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. This earth and the sky have gone away. It's just God on His throne and us. And on that day, there will be a, a real stripping away of whatever foliage, camouflage, fig leaves we've used to justify ourselves and we'll be exposed before God. There He is. There we are. No longer the God of our uh, imagination. No longer the God of our own construction. But God on His throne with all of His rights and all of His glory and us there before Him. Uh, I think of it as kind of like a great cosmic intervention. You know, Have you ever heard of you know, these things, interventions? They do this sometimes when... They do counseling with people, especially people who have addictions or people, you know, just trapped in sinful patterns. And, and so what they'll do is, you know, maybe a person uh, has, has a pattern of, of drunkenness. So finally what the family will do is they'll arrange this meeting and they'll get all the family members at the meeting. And then they'll usually have to trick the person into coming to the meeting. And the person walks in the room and suddenly everyone they know and all their friends are in the meeting and they're like, what is this, a surprise party? And like, no, sit down. We, we need to talk to you. We, we, you need to get help. You know, you are addicted to alcohol or whatever it is. And, and the person will be like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't need anything. You know, I, I go to work every day and function fine. But the boss is there. The boss is like, no, you're not doing well at work. And if you don't get help, you're going to be fired. Oh, come on, I don't get drunk. I go out with my friends, we have a drink or two. And the friend is there. And the friend's like, no, <laughs> I have a drink or two. You get intoxicated all the time. Remember last night? You know, kind of a thing. Oh, but I'm a good parent. And, you know, the wife is like, no, actually. And so the person is, is cornered by truth. 
they're just sort of trapped with the reality. Because, you know, the whole thing about addictions is it's, it's a big con game. You know, you're always conning people and lying to this one. And it's not just addicts. We're all con artists. We're all conning each other into thinking, oh, I'm fine, I'm great, I'm together, I'm with it. But finally there'll come this day where God will, you know, corner us and it'll be like a one-person intervention where he'll have all the information and we won't be able to weasel out of it, fake out of it, you know, tell a half-truth, a partial truth. It'll just be us before the throne of God. And even if there was a microphone there for us to say something, we wouldn't want to say anything. We'll just be like, you know, before God's glorious majesty on that day. And then, in our awe and our silence, God will speak. And this this brings in the next item, the next object of the scenery. After the throne, the next major object in the story are the books. You see the books in verse 12? It says, Then I saw the great and dead, uh, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Here we go. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had uh, were, <clears throat> were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. So you can see the kind of courtroom imagery emerging here. First, the the throne is set in place. The king is there. The king is also the judge. In ancient cultures, <coughs> kings rendered judgment. And then after the throne is set in place, now the court is in session and the books are being opened. The evidence is being presented. And, and so the court trial is now underway as we are face to face with our Maker and we have to be held accountable to Him. And notice, uh, you, you probably picked this up, did you, it seems that there are two types of books in this story. That, that there's the books that are opened and then there's another book which is the book of life. So there's lots of books, but it seems to be sort of two types or two species of books here. And one of the types of books is there seems to be a number of them. And these are the books that I might call the book of deeds, the book that records what we've done. As it says in verse 12, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And so there are these books in this vision that... that contain all that we've ever said and done. And I think the books uh, remind us really of God's omniscient memory. That God remembers everything. Everything's in His mind. You know, the, the picture I have in my, sort of the movie screen of my mind is the great throne. And then sort of behind the throne, this enormous bookshelf. You know, like in, the, in mansions, they have these bookshelves where you need ladders to go up to the top of them. And you know, the bookshelf sort of goes that way into the distance as far as you can see, and the bookshelf goes that way as far as you can see. And, it, you know, the ladder goes way up and kind of disappears into a cloud. And, uh, you know, a person comes before the throne and, and God, you know, does something and an angel goes, you know, an angel comes back, stack of books, you know, for that person. And then it, it, in the moment of eternity, the timelessness of eternity, the books are open and lives are recounted and, and read. And it's a terrifying thing. You know, to think of our lives being recounted before God and being held accountable for our deeds. As I was thinking about this idea of being judged according to our deeds or what we have done, I was thinking at one level that really, it actually squares with what a lot of people think about eternal life and about the judgment day. You know, I was thinking about Islam. Uh, Islam has a version of the judgment day that's actually pretty similar to this text. 
Uh, you know, if you look at Islamic teaching, there's a day when everyone stands before Allah, books are opened, and people are judged based upon what they did. And Allah may be merciful or not, but, but their deeds are the basis of it. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of like that, which makes sense, of course, because Muhammad was using, you know, he was drawing upon the Bible as he was writing the Quran in part. Um, but it's not just Islam. You know, I was thinking about, you know, go east a little bit. Go to more eastern religions. Go to, like, the concept of karma. You know, so we've, we've heard about karma. If you do more good deeds, then you get good karma and good things come back to you. And if you do bad things, you get bad karma and bad things come back to you. And in the next life, you know, your status in the next life will depend upon where your karma O meter was when you died, and you may come back better, or you may come back like a you know a donkey or something, or you may come back, you know, like closer to enlightenment and nirvana. So, so there's this kind of again, even though it's more cyclical, even though it's not as linear, there's not a judgment day. There's still this concept of my works and my deeds are what determine my destiny to a degree. Um, or, or just one more. What about Bostonianism? You know, like you know, go to Fenway. Ask the average person at Fenway, hey, you know, if, if they'll talk to a stranger, but be like, hey, you know, uh, uh, so poll question, if there is a heaven, how do you get there? And what are people going to say? I, my guess is, based on my own experience, is people will say things like, oh, you know, try to be a good person, get to church every once in a while if you can, you know, don't be an axe murderer, uh, you know, give to charity sometimes, but it's all going to be in that kind of category of things. Uh, so in one way, this idea of being judged according to our deeds in Revelation, I think would resonate with lots of people, even different cultures in different places. But where biblical Christianity diverges from this conventional wisdom is that biblical Christianity says, with all those others, yes, we will be judged according to our deeds, but Christianity says nobody will make the grade based upon our deeds. That's the difference. Like with all those others, there's a little bit of hope that, well, I might be able to get there. You know, it could work out. But Christianity is the only one saying, nobody will be declared righteous from observing the law, as the Apostle Paul says. Nobody gets there by deeds or by behavior or cultural badges or anything about us that we have to offer God as a resume or something in which we can boast. And suddenly, you know, this is where the difference is. People, it's a white throne. It's not gray it's not off-white. It's not kind of a nice cream color. You know, it, it's not sort of like, well, pretty close, but it's God's holiness. He's holy, holy, holy. And God's standard is perfection. He deserves nothing less. For Him to stand for anything less would be for God to sin. To not stand for that which is the, the most true, the most real, the most noble, the most right. And so God is holy and His throne is a white throne. In fact, the text makes it clear too that, that sin is not allowed into heaven. So it's not about having more good than bad. It's about purity and holiness. Look at chapter 21. Check this out. Chapter 21, verse 8. I don't want to jump ahead too much. We'll get there next Sunday. But chapter 21, verse 8 um, talks about the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the home of righteousness forever. But then it also has this one verse where it reminds us of who's not there. Okay, and it's pretty brutal, pretty honest. But if you look at verse 8, it says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So you just look at that list. Have you ever been cowardly? 
Have you ever not stood for what's right and not stood for God when you knew you're supposed to maybe open your mouth, but you didn't? I've been cowardly at times. You know, the unbelieving. Have you ever been unbelieving? Have you ever been there in verse 8, vile? Do you have a couple moments in your, the movie of your life that you just hope get deleted and cut out? You're like, you know, there's that one time, it was, I, I just am embarrassed to even remember it. That one time, you know, it was really vile. It wasn't just bad, it was vile. You know, and I woke up the next morning like, what have I done? Murderers. And we're like, oh, we're all fine there. We're, we're not murderers. But Jesus said, if you hate your brother, if you call him a fool. You know, have you ever fantasized about just going to town on somebody and punching them out? I mean, what's the difference? Except just that one was enacted and one wasn't, but the heart was the same. Anger and rage and malice. Sexually immoral. Have you ever had an affair? Have you ever slept with anyone outside of marriage? Have you ever been involved in homosexual activity? Have you ever looked at pornography? Have you ever fantasized? I mean, sexual immorality in all of its manifestations and forms is a disqualifier for eternal life. Then it goes on. Those who practice magic arts. you ever gone to a tarot card reader, played with a Ouija board? I mean, you know, just... It goes on and on. Idolaters. And then, of course, I love the catch-all at the end, all liars. So that if I can say, well, I haven't done any of those things, then I'm nailed at the end because I'm a liar. Because uh, (laughs) I'm just lying to myself. And so no one will be declared righteous by their deeds. There's no one who measures up to God's standard. And instead, what those, those book of deeds do in the biblical version of the story is they actually just bring condemnation. I remember talking to a woman once who was telling me how she became a Christian. And she was raised in a church-going home. Uh, Family went to church. She was a decent person. She was never an axe murderer. She, you know, wasn't a drug lord. I mean, she hadn't done any of the really bad things that we think of as, like, those are the bad things. She was just a nice, decent person. And, and, you know, uh, knew that, you know, believed Jesus was real, but didn't really cling to Jesus as, like, I need him as my Savior for my sins. And she told the story of how she eventually got to that place. She was on the phone one time with a former sort of high school, college sort of friend. Uh, and, and it was, you know, sometimes you get on the phone with those old friends and they start recounting the glory days. Like, oh, remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? And, and as this friend started retelling all these stories that the friend thought, oh, this was so cool, wasn't it great? This lady, as she's listening, was like, oh, yeah, that, actually, that was pretty, that was, I shouldn't have done that. And, and that friend thought she was, you know, saying, wasn't this a great time? But this woman was being convicted by the Holy Spirit as those old memories were brought back, kind of like the books being opened. And she came to realize, wow, I'm not as, you know, clean and pure as the wind-driven snow as I thought I was. And it was through that that God began to show her, yeah, yeah, you're not an axe murderer, but you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that sort of led her to coming to the place where she turned to Christ for salvation. So what do we do if, if our book of our deeds can only condemn us? What do we do? Well, fortunately, there's another book. You know, I love that. Verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And it is of paramount importance that we be found in the book of life. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is hell, God's final judgment. And so the real key is getting into the book of life. I mean, what is the book of life? How do you get there? What, what, what exactly does it involve? 
well, let me give you a, a verse that I think is helpful in illuminating that. Turn to chapter 21, verse 27. A little phrase that helps a lot. Chapter 21, verse 27. Talking about the book of life again and about eternal life and who's there and who isn't there. It says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Ah! So it's not just the book of life, it's the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb, of course, is Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the Lamb. And, and what is, what's the significance of calling Him the Lamb? What, what is that about Jesus that it's kind of highlighting or putting the, the point upon? It's, isn't it His sacrifice on the cross? It's like when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' lambness was in the sense that He was like the Old Testament sacrifices. He was bearing our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So that all of my deeds, which should, like an anchor, cast, cast me into the lake of fire and sink me down forever, all of those deeds were instead put upon Christ on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Jesus was the, my substitutionary lamb. He was my uh, penal substitute. He made atonement for me on the cross so that I could escape God's judgment. The only way out of God's judgment is for God to provide the way out by sacrificing His own Son. There's nothing I can do to get there myself. Or to think about it this way, if your name is written in the book of life, what that means is for you personally, the judgment day has already come and went. It came and went on Christ. When Christ was suffering, that was my judgment day. I mean, I'll still be there at the judgment day, but there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because my, my judgment is gone. It's past. So that, you know, on that day when the angel flies up and gets my books, you know, and brings them down, you know, it would go way up to the ceiling. Here's Jeremy's stack. And they're about to open it. You know, it's as if Jesus stands up from the throne, you know, with his book. And he says, wait, <laughs> ah, here he is, Father, throw his books away. You know, This one's mine, don't read his books, this one is mine, I'll take those books, thank you, we'll throw them away. I have died for this one, this is my, this is my son. The richest man in the world would give his fortune ten times over on that day to have His name written in the book of life. What wouldn't you give on that day when God's throne is before you, when time has come to an end, when hell stands open ready to receive you, and the only thing keeping you out of it is your name in the book of life. Nothing will matter on that day except hearing Jesus say, wait, she's mine. Wait, I died for Him. And so where are you written? Are you in the book of life or not? Do you have Christ or not? I mean, this is all that really matters in the grand scheme of things. Everything else is just details compared to this great question. Are you still believing that you're good enough, smart enough, environmentally sensitive enough, well-educated enough, religious enough, spiritual enough, 
Or, or have you come to that wonderful, freeing realization that this is just foliage that's going to burn and I need to take off the fig leaves, come in my nakedness before God, so to speak, to use that Eden imagery, and just say, Jesus, I need you to clothe me with your righteousness. Jesus, would you provide the clothing that I can't provide for myself? Do, do we trust in the book of deeds or do we trust in Jesus' book of life, which is the book of done? It's done. There's nothing to do except receive it and then live a life of joyous gratitude in light of that. And if we don't have the book of life, if we're not in the book of life, if we haven't come to Christ and that day comes, well, then we come to the final object, the final piece of scenery, the terrifying piece of scenery, which is the lake of fire. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then Hades and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the throne. The court is in session. We have the books, the evidence, and the arguments. And then we have the lake of fire, the sentencing at the end of the court. So there's the whole courtroom flow if you're sort of tracking that. And you have the lake of fire. This is hell. This is... God's forever punishment for sin. And, you know, I was trying to think of what to say about this. I don't know what to say. It's, it's just so awful. It is so terrifying. One can almost just simply look at it. It's something just kind of just be stared at and soaked in. Speechless. Let's just look at it then. Look at, go back to chapter 20, verse 10. Here's another little glimpse of it. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's the final abode of Satan. If you are in the lake of fire, your companion are devils and demons. It's a place of torment. It's forever. It's not a place where you're annihilated and go into extinction. It's a place of conscious suffering. Or go back to chapter 14. The, the phrase lake of fire isn't in chapter 14, verses 9 to 11, but I think everything else is, so that I'm fairly certain this is still describing hell. Chapter 14, we have a vision of the final judgment. Verse 9, it says, A third angel uh, followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. You know, one of the, uh, the old pastors I like to read sometimes is Jonathan Edwards because he writes so exquisitely about hell. And I find it so helpful for my own soul to just sit sometimes and be reminded of that which I'm escaping through Christ. You know, when I start taking my salvation cheap as a cheap thing, when I start taking the gospel as just sort of routine, it's so helpful just to be reminded, what is it the gospel saves me from ultimately? And so I love Edwards because he's so clear about what it is. And I love Revelation, not because I enjoy the thought of hell, but it's just such a good 
purifying reminder. This is what Christ has saved me from. This is why the gospel is precious. This is why Christ's death is everything. Because this is the hell from which we're saved. Or go back to chapter 20, verse uh, 14 again. The lake of fire is the second death. Have you ever pondered that phrase? The second death. What does that mean? You know? Well, some kind of, what's that communicating? The second death. Okay, so the first death is when I die physically in this life. Some, some point I'll die in God's time and I'll be done. So what's the second death? Does that mean I come back to life physically and then I die physically again? Well, no, I don't think so because it says here in, in the text that, that those in the second death are, are suffering. So it's not sort of going unconscious or something. I mean, you're still alive in some sense. Uh, we're raised from the dead. Satan goes into the, the second death. And we know that he's not a physical being, so it can't be a physical kind of death. In fact, it says in verse 14 that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So physical death, as we know it in this life, is, is no more. There's some other kind of death that takes place. And so I suppose, you know, some have called it a spiritual death. I'm not exactly sure what all that means, but it's some kind of ultimate ruin and misery of the soul uh, of the very core part of me that makes me me forever in under God's judgment it, it's a terrifying image you, you know the more you try to think about what that means again the weight of hell comes upon you and you're like wow this is what God's wrath is all about you, you know it, sometimes you can think of it as a, an eternal sinking down into the darkness of despair and just when you think you're about to touch bottom, you realize you haven't even really broken the surface. That is forever sinking down without hope under God's judgment. On that day, we will give anything to hear the Lamb say, this one is in my book on that day. And so God is warning us. I'm trying to think what to do with this passage. I mean, it's a warning. Right? It's a warning. We're all here in this room today because God wants us here to warn us about this, this serious day. Um, you know, why are you here? <laughs> why am I here? What's well, my job? No, what, no, why am I here? Okay, that's how I got here, but what's God's purpose for us in being here today? Why did your friend drag you here today? You know, why did your parents make you come? God is warning us. Will we heed His warning? And trust in Christ. How many times has God warned us in our lives? You know, maybe maybe God started warning you when you were a kid. Did you grow up in a church-going family where your parents tried to bring you to some religious education and you heard some things about God? Maybe as a little kid you had some initial stirrings in your heart toward God, but then you know you got to the teenage years and and college and that just kind of went out the window. But then when you were in college, there was like some guy or some girl three dorms down three dorm rooms down who was one of those go to the Bible study people and they're like, hey, you should come with me to our campus ministry. And you're like, eh, I don't want to go there and be seen with you people because, you know, that, that would ruin things for me with someone I'm trying to date. I don't want to be seen with you Christian types. And, and so there was another opportunity, but, but you missed it. And then at work you had a, an annoying co-worker who was always quoting Bible verses to you. And in your family, maybe you have that one cousin who's one of those born-againers. And that born-againer cousin's always... You know, no one, no one else in the family wants them to come to the Labor Day cookout. 
Because like, oh, they're always trying to convert everybody. It's so annoying. I just wish they wouldn't come. But, you know, God sent someone to you. And then you went to that funeral where someone died. And the pastor, you know, was preaching something about from the Bible. And, and like for a moment, you started opening up for just a couple hours. You started thinking about eternal matters. But then you walked out of that funeral and, oh, forget that. I don't want to think about that. And how many near misses have you had? How many times are you like, whoa, I could have died right there. Oh, someone out there was looking out for me. Well, I'm off on my day. You know, but you forgot. And so here again, God is speaking to us. Not me, but the text. God is telling us and warning us. And here's another question. How many warnings do you think you get? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know what the answer is not. The answer is not infinity. There is only so many warnings that God is reaching out to us and calling us. And even if we consider ourselves Christians, I think this text is a calling to make sure that we really are in the faith, to really examine our hearts and make sure that we're following Christ and, and to make our calling and our election sure by, by testing ourselves and, and being more serious and more faithful as an evidence of our salvation. But God is reaching out. God is speaking. I uh, told this story in the first service too. Uh, our our uh, mission team that went to Montana, some of you may know, we sent a group of people from our church to Montana just to help some churches out there do evangelism. You know that some of those churches are in rural areas. They don't have a lot of resources. So we sent a bunch of people, and they did a vacation Bible school for the kids in this one town, and they did a cookout. Uh, you know, and anyone who you know maybe couldn't send kids to vacation Bible school, come to the cookout, and they're just trying to to share the gospel and tell people the good news. Uh, so uh, two members of our team, Nancy Lundquist and Alana Casey, went. Uh, I, Nancy was telling me this story. They they went to this one woman's door. They're just canvassing the neighborhood, knocking on doors, inviting people to vacation Bible school. So they knocked at this one lady's door, and and for whatever reason, she's like, no, I don't know if she didn't have kids or whatever, but she was she didn't have any kids to send to vacation Bible school. And they're like, well, that's okay. Just come to the picnic, come to the cookout, you know. And she's like, well, I really don't go out very much. Uh, you know, I've, I've had some medical problems. You know, can we pray for you? And she's like, well, I, I was in this car accident recently and, and I lost my arm, right? And so Alana Casey has had some wrist problems for a long time. She's like, yeah, I got all kinds of arm problems, you know. And if you know Nancy Lundquist, she was born without an arm. So Nancy's like, you don't have an arm? Me either, you know. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, there's God's wisdom, like, look, woman, you know, God has sent you two arm problem peoples to, invi- to invite another arm problem person to hear the gospel. Like, okay, great, you got arm problems. Come hear the gospel. You got a bigger problem. Come hear the gospel. So, so that kind of opened a door to talk more. And I, I don't know all the ins and outs of the conversation, but at some point in the conversation, I guess, Nancy told me that she just asked the woman, you know, well, where do you think you're, you're going when you die? And the woman said very matter-of-factly, she, apparently she wasn't being sarcastic or snarky or anything like that. She just said very matter-of-factly, I'm going to hell when I die. You know, it's like, wow. It's just, for someone just to say that, I'm going to hell. I'm, I, my life is miserable. I have no arm now. I'm going to hell. You know, and it's like, you don't have to go to hell. There's someone right at your door, sent by God perfectly designed for you to invite you to not just the barbecue, but the heavenly banquet. Like, come to Christ. 
Don't stay there in your house. Don't stay there in your misery and your hopelessness. Come to Jesus. He's at your door in the form of these two women standing there inviting you to come as as His ambassadors. And Christ is standing there and He's calling us. Uh, What's keeping you from Christ? I mean, really, what could it be? There is nothing more important in your life than to be sure that on the great day of assessment, our name will be found in the book of life, written in Jesus' own blood. Let's pray.